Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. All right, folks, welcome to the Elk Talk podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And Randy and I are wrapping up day, what is today, day three? They say it's day two. Day two for day, us. <laughs> day two, but I feel like I've been here a month. Yeah, we're at the Western Conservation and Hunting Expo in Utah. Yeah. And it is Saturday evening, so we are exhausted. So yep. we brought some youthful Yes. Uh, 
content wow. to the podcast tonight. Yeah. And uh, we have Mr. Ryan Lampers. And we have to mention that Hillary, his lovely wife, has tapped in with us. The, the, we didn't turn the microphone off. This last time Ryan and I did a podcast together, Brian Call turned the microphone, turned Hillary's microphone <laughs> off and gave her the headset and said, you can listen. What? So she's over that there like... That was because he had just recently done a podcast with me on stress. And uh-huh. so I don't think he wanted me chiming in. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're going, you know, you can, Ryan will say something. I can see him looking out of the corner of his eye over at it's Hillary. Like she's going to correct hit, me. Yeah, so we have, we have Hillary's <laughs> microphone turned on. So if you yeah. need to correct Ryan... Uh-huh. You are free to do I, that. I will be. Brian, my, my faults are going to get aired if, here. If, if no you, doubt about if you it. Your <laughs> faults have already been aired. We have a podcast, That's remember? True. Yeah. I, see, I, there is no way my wife and I could do a podcast together. Yeah. My, she used to work at my CPA firm when I first started it. Oh. It was kind of like a all hands on deck, you know, trying to build it. And to this day, we argue whether she quit or she got fired. <laughs> oh, my wife! My wife firmly says she got fired for insubordination. Yeah, yeah. I, it was uh, the fact that you guys can do that is really impressive. Well, well, it, the, yeah, but we. I have another job that I go to, so it's not like it's my full-time job. We're trying to make it. We've, we've tried, but yeah. Um, yeah, we never worked together. We we had a whole family together. Worked and just in the last two years, we started doing this together, and there's definitely a learning curve. So with no your, doubt about it. With your other yes. full-time job, can we call you Doc or Doctor? Sure. What, you That's want? Fine. Doc Hill. Doc, yeah. Doc Hill. Is Doc that, Hill. Isn't yep. that your Instagram handle? Doc Hillary. Doc yeah. Hillary. Yeah. All right. Yep. yep. So I can't fake any things about medicine or you can't, you can't even talk about Dairy Queen Randy me, hey, I we really have control of the microphone here <laughs> if we need to fake something we will turn the microphone off and we'll fake it you know uh, what yeah. I love Randy that you talk about Dairy Queen because I went as a kid I went to the same Dairy Queen you did really all the time growing like, up in Bozeman you went yeah. to the one on North 7 well it's covered now you walk inside it but you used mm-hmm. to go outside get your ice cream sit yeah. there oh yeah we'd go there we'd skip high school and go over to the Dairy Queen and get a Dairy Queen in the middle of winter when it was 20 below sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to buy that Dairy Queen twice. Oh, Me really? and one of my CPA clients who's an attorney, he's he's from the Midwest. He's got the same Dairy Queen problem. Whenever I see him, we meet we, by random. We meet at Dairy Queen and because after dinner at like 7 o'clock, it's kind of like family thing to go Dairy Queen in the summer. And Mike and I have decided, we, we actually went into the Dairy Queen when the owner was there and said, we want to buy this if ever you put it up for sale. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gave them our business cards. She sold the darn thing, and next huh. time, a couple of years later, we're in there. It's like under new ownership. So we seek out the new owner. The new owner is from Minnesota. I'm like, well, I got an inside track here. You know, I'm from Minnesota. And uh, same gig. We, we tell this person, we want to buy this Dairy Queen. It's like, sold again? Wow. No kidding. But it's probably not best probably to talk to the owner while you have blizzard dripping <laughs> off your chin and say, we want to buy Dairy Queen. But last week at Sheep Show in Reno, a guy comes up to me. He's like, I own two Dairy Queens. I own blah, blah, blah. He said, you are like the best ambassador Dairy Queen could have ever invented. <laughs> he said, and my buddy in Twin Falls, Idaho is selling his franchise. I said, well, there's two of them there. He's like, you know that? I'm like, yeah, I know there's two of them in I've, Twin I've Falls. i got the Randy app. Yeah. He's like, well, I'll tell him if you're interested. I'm like, 
me and Mike are still in the search to own a Dairy Queen franchise. That's when we know we've made it in life if we ever <laughs> own a Dairy Queen franchise. See, you're never satisfied, though. No. You, you got followed by Dairy Queen on Instagram. That yeah. should be the epitome. It is. I, I, that's as real, realistically, that's far beyond where I expected yeah. my life would ever wow. end But now up. you want to own a Dairy Queen. They just... Yeah. Then what? I then I want to take Warren Buffett hunting. I was because gonna say just own Dairy Queen itself. <laughs> yeah. Just it's go like, and yeah. be Mr. Dairy Queen. Yeah. I bet you can get a blizzard machine and just put on your counter at home. Oh boy, that'd be bad. That I'd be seeing <laughs> I'd be seeing Doc Hillary for <laughs> <laughs> sugar diabetes, <laughs> obesity, <laughs> uh, you name it. Be, anyway. That is always the dilemma, right? <clears throat> Owning yeah. something like that. Yeah. I, I always Ryan and I actually years ago we looked to own one of those cold cold Creek ice cream places. Cold they were Stone. Cold, Cold Stone. Stone. Yeah. They were first coming out, and we yeah. thought, wow, it looked like it was so successful. And I just told them, I just don't know if I could own something like that. Because I know I'm like making people like fat and sick. But it's a good idea. You know, so there's like, that's the problem when you have too many like things around health. You sometimes think about that stuff. But. Yeah. Yeah. So well, this, we don't want to get too far a, down yeah, that this road. Okay, enough for me. This, this is, is the Elk, elk Talk podcast. Yeah. Right. So we, yeah. we actually invited Ryan to come on because Ryan hunts in a way that we want to yeah. learn to hunt like. He's the ninja. He is the ninja, <laughs> the <laughs> stealthy hunter. Yeah, oh, the stealthy. Stealthy. Yeah. Yes. Stealthy. No. How, how do you pronounce that? It's, so we just say stealthy, but it's actually stay healthy. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And, that, and that was created by, of course, Doc Hillary. Which is why we can't own a Dairy Queen ever. Stealthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had a friend who owned one, you know, yeah. I, I always say about hunting dogs, you don't need one if you have a friend that's, who has one. That's right. Hunting dogs, trampolines, and swimming pools. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Or fishing boats. <laughs> and or ski boats. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, or a podcast. A podcast. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, let's let's stay on the elk hunting yeah. track here. Yep. So, so, Ryan, just tell us a little yes. bit of background. You, I mean, you and I and Ryan Carter, Ryan Call, Jason Phelps did a podcast yesterday. Talked a little bit about elk hunting and some I of think, our styles and strategies yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And I just, for me, it's all calling. And you know, Randy, I think you know, Randy's the late season guy. He's yeah. the guru when it comes to that. Right. But when we hunt archery, we call. When you hunt. It's like everything that lives and breathes is in danger <laughs> no. because they don't know you're there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can't say I have one style of hunting. Yeah. I, you know, I love to do it the way you do it as well. And that's call and chase that one bull out there. That's just, that's his day, right? Just uh, hitting ridges and screaming and locating and, you know, trying to find that hot bull. That is fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, certain times of the year, it's just, I don't know, sometimes it's not a, uh, affected for me so totally. um, being in Montana now I've I've come to really like that it's, it's not quite a post rut but it's it's that October hunt because mm-hmm. our, um, our for the listener our archery season did you see how late it stays open this year until October 20th, 20th. the 20th yeah. so when's it open like September 6th 7th yeah. 7th yeah. yeah yeah so no I've I've come to enjoy that hunt um, for a variety of reasons I think number one is the woods clear out that time of year yeah now, that can be that one of the tougher times of the year to call bulls in, so you kind of have to vary your techniques, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's For me, uh, that time of year has been great for spot and stock. And, you know, you just kind of have to direct your, you know, where you're going to the type of terrain that lends itself to good spot and stock hunting. Yeah. Montana's got a lot of that. So, um, 
you know, I can't say I'm just one, like do it one way. We, that was what was interesting yesterday is, uh, you know, making fun of Jason Phelps. I know his style and it works for him. Um, I'd say the only style that I really don't enjoy would be sitting at a water hole or um, you oh, know, tree stand or anything like that. I, but would, I you, would you do that to hunt the big elk? I wouldn't. Man, I, I never have had yeah. to, Corey. Uh, I do like to target one bull. Um, it's almost like whatever it's going to take to get that bull, and that yep. might be a extremely like last resort. But that is not fun for me. It's just not as exciting yep. as trying to find a hot bull and you know trying to. Eat. I, I would just as soon try to you know get in his path, you know, from bedding area to whatever. And it's I don't know the, the sitting around at a water hole has just never appealed yeah. to me. It doesn't appeal to me with deer hunting anything really so i'm too active i'm too add for that <laughs> I, just so. say, I don't have the patience to sit before yeah. we move on you said something there that every listener is going to say all right ryan what is good spot and stock terrain so um man i would say an area that's got a lot of glassing um you know, I've loved Eastern Montana. That's yeah. one of my favorite places to hunt. It really lends itself to being able to pick out animals at long distances and kind of put a stock together. And uh, now there's a lot of that in the Western front as well. You know, the last couple of years, I've spent some time over there and found some areas where um, that time of year you find bigger groups of elk. Um, you know, there's a lot more cows. The bigger bulls tend to have a pretty good group of cows at that point. Um, this year, for example, uh, late season. I think I got over there about October, first week in October at some point. And man, there, nobody's out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm being able to, you know, hit a ridge, glass up bulls, glass up good numbers of elk. And then just basically put a, st- a, a spot and stock plan together and, and go for it. Um, and that's worked really well. The last two bulls in, in Montana have been that style. Uh, now, a lot of that has been, because I'm like you, I do like that first part of September up to the 10th or, you know, 15th. Yeah. I feel like that, that time of year is really effective um, getting some of them really big bulls to come into the calls. After that, it gets a little frustrating. It's exciting. It's, it's a lot of fun chasing bugles and, and trying to get in on them, but uh, it can be a little frustrating at times. So do you use calls at all during that October time frame? I do, yeah, For locating, absolutely. getting Lo- them talking? Yep, locating them. Um, still going around at night and trying to pitch locators off ridges and uh, especially in new country the last last few years i've really branched out um away from washington and and just seeing brand new country so i'm learning a lot learning these new areas and uh yeah so locating them in the dark has been really effective for me um it's kind of sucks in a way. You're up all night. You don't get much sleep, but it does tell you where you should be and where you should focus October, your efforts. It's getting dark earlier. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. so you do get a little Still bit more of that some. nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, September, first part of September, it's like daylight till 10 o'clock. It's daylight at 545. And so right. if you're out for three hours at night trying to locate, you're getting right. three or four hours of sleep. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, kind of like what I mentioned yesterday, um, I... I I'm not the world's best caller, so I've just had to figure out ways of just making it work. Like, Mm -hmm. my mentor was a guy in North Idaho that I learned from a long time ago. And he cut years and years and years of um, failing, failing in the mountains off for me. And, um, you know, he, he taught me, like, I remember sitting down at his house and he would show me videos of how bulls, what it takes to get bulls to actually come together and fight. And his philosophy was 
never cow call ever leave the cow calls at home yeah and he his whole thing was fighting you know getting them to come together so there, there's a lot of like locating there was a lot of branch breaking raking big sticks um trying to get bulls in that way especially in north idaho where you know a lot of those bulls get hammered a lot and they hear a lot of calls they hear a lot of cow calls from every logging road every road yeah. the diesel gets shut uh, shut off and they hear <laughs> cow calls within five seconds you know so and they get smart to that so he uh yeah his philosophy was that whatever it took to get those bulls to come together and, and breaking branches and and popping sticks and you know raking with big sticks that's just been real effective for me um and we, again, we talked about that yesterday, yeah. and that's just one of the methods that's worked. But definitely, uh, I just try to do whatever it takes besides sit at a water hole. <laughs> <laughs> so you lived in Washington for how long? My whole life up until this year. So oh, 45 really? years. 45 years. Wow. Yes. Yep. You, so, mar- you, you married, I married Doc Hillary I from married, Montana. Yes, for Montana, because I knew she was from the great state of Montana. I knew she was going to be a great lady. So. And, uh, we met in Alaska so many years ago. And um, yeah, 22 years ago. 24 years ago. So we've been married for 22 years, almost. So 24 years ago. Yeah. Why'd you glance down at the microphone button? I wanted to turn it off. <laughs> so she can't correct me. There's going to be a lot of mistakes made. Uh, so when you lived in Washington, did you hunt elk there a lot? Yes, yes. Rosies? So or a lot of rosies. Um, a lot of west side bulls. There's a couple years I hunted Rockies on the eastern front, but tags, Washington has kind of a different system. So you have to pick and choose your weapon choice. You have to pick and choose east or west. Um, the only way you get around that is if you apply for a multi-season tag. Um, and you have to apply to get that. They give so many multi-seasons. I think it's 500 per year for elk, 1,500 for deer. It's going to cost you three times the amount to get mm-hmm. that tag. But that allows you to apply for those rocky hunts on the eastern side of, of Washington. And also... So like southeast, is that... Uh, yeah, the blues and yeah. all that. Um, so what's kept me from hunting much on the east side is just that. I want to hunt big bulls every year or just mature bulls. And my only opportunity to do that is to hunt the western side. Because, hmm. uh, you know, it's like a three-point minimum on that side in most units. So you can chase bulls every year over there and never have to worry about a season where, um, you know, you're not going to hunt elk in Washington. So yeah. if, if I was to actually, you know, specify east side tag for Washington, I would only, if I didn't draw, I would have the opportunity to go on some cow hunts or spike hunts. And there's very little opportunity for, uh, for mature chirpals. So if you specify east side and don't draw, you don't get to go over the counter west side. You, no. you have to choose. Right, right. You have to choose. Oh, no. And that, is, that has pushed me to hunt western Washington. And, you know, it, completely different terrain. It's, it's a lot thicker. Um, you know, if you're hunting the coast, it's a lot of rainforest, you know, big cedars, old growth, stuff like that. We got some great bulls in Washington. But, uh, you know, the further up you get towards the crest, you've obviously got kind of have a mix of Rockies and Rosies, and they're kind of, um, you know, both up there. So, I don't know. It, it, I've spent probably 90% of my time on the western side of Washington and had great luck. Uh, yeah. it's, been, it's been a lot of fun hunting that rainforest and jungle over there, but so I, really, I really enjoy the... Did you grow up elk hunting? No, so I didn't. I, uh, my dad... When I was growing up, I lo- I'm a lifelong hunter, but I did a lot of bird hunting, a lot of fishing, um, 
and more deer hunting than anything else. I didn't become an elk hunter until I would say I was 19, 18, 19. And that's when I met up with old Dallas Blood and he he kind of showed me the ropes, um, shaved all those years. I stayed with this guy for like three weeks <laughs> at one point and we would go out every day. Um, just a salt of the earth type guy, worked at a mill. His wife was the mail lady and I was guiding lakes. So I'd, I would guide places, Alaska, wherever I'd come back. And um, I, I met this guy at one of my lakes. I'd show guys how to fly fish, you know, how to fly cast and, you know, whatever. And I'd stock these private lakes. And I, it was basically a, you know, like a um, uh, pay-to-play type thing. So people would come to me and I'd kind of teach them the ropes. And I met Dallas through that. He, he was trying to learn how to fly fish. <laughs> and, you know, he was, I think when I met him, the guy was about 60 years old. And he was like one of the most fit guys I've ever met. So here's this 19 year old and, you know, and then you got, you got Dallas who was 60 and he would stomp me in the mountains. Uh, his philosophy was uh, the shortest, you know, distance is, is a straight line. So there was no zigzagging up the mountain or anything like that. It was just get there. And now he taught me a, a, so much in those years. And, you know, that's what I think a lot of people miss out and might get frustrated with when, beginning elk hunters try to get into it is there's just such a learning curve yeah. and having a mentor it's it's huge yeah so. when you fail it's important to fail but yeah. it's also important to realize what went wrong and fix it and i think without a mentor a lot of times we're left failing right. and throwing our hands up because we don't know what we did wrong we don't know why it didn't work and it can get pretty frustrating pretty quickly yeah so having a teacher we we would go back at the end of the day after I would screw up all these hunts, you know, <laughs> in front of him. It got to the point where he thought, you know, he taught me enough. He'd say, all right, how are you going to tackle this bull? Pitch a bugle. Uh, how are you going to get to that bull? What are you going to do? And I'd go do it, and he'd, and I'd get back, you know, walk of shame back, and I'd never work out. And then he'd tell me what <laughs> I did wrong, like, you know, going in screaming at a bull, pitching a bugle every 50 yards, you know, why that didn't work. And so it was very educational for me. And then we'd go back at the end of the day, and we'd sit in his humble little Idaho, North Idaho home, and we'd watch elk videos that he had taken, like <laughs> oh, in no. Yellowstone National Park, just showing like, you know, how bulls interact with each other and what it takes to, you know, from the bugle fest to the scraping, to the breaking of the brush, to the view, you know, and, and that after that point is when it all happened. So that was really interesting. I was very fortunate to, to kind of be mentored by a guy like that. Very cool. So, wow. How do you spot and stock hunt elk in northern Idaho, though, or, <laughs> no. or in western Washington? No. He did not teach me how to spot and stock. Okay. That, was, that was some of the thickest country. It, it, it was real similar to, um, to Corey, your philosophy. It was um, a lot of calling and bugling. And, and that's where I grew it, up, was it, north Idaho. So, that's, yeah, that's yep. where I think that, yep. that strategy comes yeah. from is just getting the thick timber with them. You get aggressive and push the buttons till they come in because they have to come in you right. can't you can't move in on an elk in north idaho right there's no slipping in on it in its bed and no none of that no you pretty much keep your binoculars in your truck yeah. or your house but <laughs> i never owned binoculars until <laughs> no, i moved to no. Boise and, really no dallas and he got he got to the point where he wasn't even actually using a you know a bugle he was throat calling and and whatnot and he'd get a wow. he'd get a big fat tube and just use the tones in his throat 
and he would work up all summer to get those tones right, to strengthen those chords in his throat to get the, the sounds right. It was really impressive, but yeah. he was that hardcore about elk hunting, and he just... How far north? What, what part of North Idaho? He was uh, just north of Coeur d'Alene, okay, so, so on south, there. south end of Hayden there. Yeah. And, um, he hunted all that country, the Coeur d'Alene's, all the way down through the Joe and yeah. into the Clearwater, but he tried to stay pretty close to that, you know, Bonners and, and yeah. whatnot. So, nope, nope. That's, uh, I mean, and honestly, it's like hunting... The coastal, yeah, it is it very, really is very as similar. As far as terrain, and you get it's steep, it's it, rugged. It's all about calling. Yeah, and, yeah, I could see the shame in Dallas's face if he had to break out a cow call. Really? <laughs> 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 he just, he just wanted to stick with. He loved that um, adrenaline that he got when he picked the fight with the right bull, and he came screaming in. Yeah, that was what he lived for. So, so. Did, did you start out archery hunting, Ryan? Oh, I did for elk. For yes. elk, yeah, for that's elk. what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you start yeah. out archery hunting for elk, Corey? See, I started out with the crutch of a rifle, and I don't think I'll ever be able to get rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love chasing them with a bow, but they've, they they got a really good chance of escaping when I'm out there with a the bow. <laughs> I mean, I, and no, the reason I ask that is I'm, as I'm listening to the two of you, uh, it seems so intuitive to you guys about, things that elk are doing and how they're responding and reacting and as someone who didn't grow up trying to get elk in this very intimate short range scenario uh, i'm always listening and and learning because i i still feel today that i i have it's always trial and error but it's still way too much error for me when it comes to archery hunting yeah because i i grew up as a rifle hunter yeah well, see, and I think, like, I grew up as an elk hunter from the beginning. I think someone who grows up as a deer hunter probably becomes a better elk hunter because elk hunting, once you learn to rely on calls, it's easy. Like, I mean, it really, I think elk hunting is easy. And I don't mean that from uh, the terrain standpoint or anything, but as far as the strategy to call in an elk, it's not difficult. Like, it's not, it's just a process you do. And if you're in, a, in the train, and everything's right, to call in a bull elk is not difficult. Yeah. But it's more prob- about putting yourself in the right position yeah. at the right time, totally. being consistent, being able to stick it out, I think. So that, I think that hasn't made me a good hunter. I, I can elk hunt, but when it comes to hunting other species, I would point to that guy and say, he's the guy to go out and get camp meat tonight. Because <laughs> yeah. if he's going to slip up on something and kill something, like he said earlier, you target one specific animal, I would hate to be that animal. <laughs> yeah. If Ryan Lampers uh, is targeting me, that's well, that's a place I don't want to be in yeah, life. Yeah, I I witnessed that almost firsthand last month in Arizona. So I've spent me and my camera crew dragging around southern Arizona, probably a total of well before you got there, we'd probably spent a total of twelve days scaring deer away in Arizona. <laughs> Ryan shows up. And I've never met him. He like, seems like a good guy, and he's really not saying a whole lot. He's like, oh, I've never seen a coos deer before. <laughs> I don't, and, and didn't you tell us you'd never been to Arizona? I had never seen a cactus before. Yeah, oh, that's what, what I said. told you. And I'm like, whoa, we've got a He green. was actually sending me pictures of cactus. It's like, look at that. Really? <laughs> and so here's what's going through my head. I, I have no idea, uh, you know, his hunting background. And... The very first night, we all come back to camp, and he's got pictures of 
bigger buck on, uh, that he'd taken through his phone scope than we'd seen in the previous two years of hunting down there. <laughs> and then he tells us, yeah, I think this one, I think he's killable. Next day, he comes back, he's got the rack of one of those. Was it one of the ones he had pictures of? Yeah, it was. So, yeah, the, I had found a really good buck, and that was, uh, that was in a spot that I just felt like if I stuck it out, I'd just hunt that specific buck because he was a really nice buck. <laughs> Not that I knew a whole lot about coos deer, but, yeah, from what I had seen in photos and talked to people, that was a really nice buck. Yeah. So, no, that, yeah, it, it ended up being a different buck, but I don't know how that one slipped away. But the one that I ended up getting moved into the the small area where I was basically targeting that one, and uh, that's the one I got. So, so the 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 second night he comes in, he's he's not bringing pictures this time. He's bringing the proof. <laughs> he he's got he's got a dead buck. But I just heard something. You targeted a buck and shot a different one. I did. So, I mean, realistically, was that a successful hunt? Total failure. <laughs> it was, it was a, a little bit of shame. Rocket class. A little bit of shame. Deer. Yeah, yeah, with a bow, yeah. his second day of out doing it. Yeah. And so, needless to say, all the rest of us who were in camp, we're like, well, we're not going to top that one. So who's looking for the consolation prize here? Because we've all been doing this for years and never had any. I, I'm I'm to the point where I'm trying to shoot what I call them Sonoran dick dicks. They're the, <laughs> Just a spike. They're the little spikes. That, <laughs> those little coos deer have about an inch and a half spike. So yeah. I I, I want to shoot one. But no, here comes Ryan. Well, is this a good one? Everybody's like, oh, my God. So I'll, is that a mule deer? Yeah. Uh. So I, I, to your point, if if Ryan says, I think I'm going to shoot one today, yeah, you can probably punch your tag in confidence. That so, so two it, questions to follow up with that. Did you, what led you to being a stealthy hunter? Like, I mean, the spot and stock, just the animal assassin out there <laughs> oh man um hmm. uh i don't know Corey. because you didn't I, start hunting elk until you I were 18 or 19 no no but i had hunted deer a lot yeah. birds a lot and just love everything about the outdoors and i've been really fortunate to spend a lot of time in the mountains um and whether it's been the paying attention to animal behavior or whatever uh you know, trying to answer that is difficult. It's like, why does it end up happening? Yeah. Um, because it, my biggest, like, I want to be consistent, like, with everything, whether that's a bear hunt or a deer hunt or an elk hunt or anything. And it just seems like every hunt, there's things you have to figure out that are unique to that situation. Yeah. You know, for example, talking about elk, it's like North Idaho, that's a calling situation. So, you know, Use every advantage you can to get those bulls to come in. The topography in Montana, um, whether it's sage flats or more open ridges, um, you know, quakies, aspens, you name it, that might lend itself more to, you know, do more spot and stock. Right. It's going to be more effective for it's you. It's difficult and, to call and, in that open terrain. Yeah. And generally in that terrain, you know, a lot of those bulls become call shy. So, uh, you know, I... Explain, explain to me call shy. Call shy. Yeah, you make what you think is a good call, and they go the other way. Um, so what causes? Uh, so it it seems as if the places that get higher pressure, um, whether that oh, stick to Montana, for example, a lot of those eastern bulls, um, 
Now, I haven't spent a ton of time in eastern Montana chasing elk. Um, I've, I've only hunted that once. But um, I've hunted places that do get hit a lot more of that open country. And it just seems like they've been chased for a while and just, they, just know, they just know the calling. I don't know. I mean, maybe if it was uh, Corey Jacobson making the calls and no, they had I've, no I've had idea the same it was a human. So. <laughs> but um, they just seem to know. And it's, it, and it's frustrating because you think you make a perfect call, but it's almost like they're seeing right through you like that. That's a human. I'm going the other way. And yet when they're out there, they're still bugling. They're still doing their elk thing but they just seem to know. And I, I have no idea why that is, but uh, a lot more of that open terrain. I was just going to say, do you think it's more a, a factor of the terrain than the pressure? I mean, is there Could be. truly more pressure in those areas or is it just in that open terrain, they can see, and if they don't see an elk, they know something's that, wrong. That could be it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I, I've not spent a lot of time hunting in that terrain, but I hear it all, the, like the breaks and stuff in mm-hmm. Montana. Everybody's like, I don't even take a bugle tube. Those elk are so call shy. Yes. But then I know people that hunt part of the breaks that's heavily timbered. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, calling is off the charts there. Like the right. elk will come run, big bulls, you know, 350 bulls will come running to calls. Right. And so I just, I don't know if it's more a matter of terrain, if it's I, pressure. I, that they recognize that's a human bugle or I, I don't have that answer. I think every time I would start off, you know, along the lines of how you start off, you know, pitching bugles, trying to locate a hot bull. And if that's not working, it goes to plan B. And that's basically try to get in on the bulls that you're able to locate, whether it's through just a location bugle and trying to get in tight and having them make the mistake or, you know, putting them in a spot where you can get in on them and actually, you know, get an arrow in them and they're bad or or whatnot, but it just changes, you know, with the different types of terrain and how those elk are behaving, how they're acting to your calls. North Idaho, it's always the same. It's always find that hot bull, the one that's ready that specific day. Um, He may not have been ready the day before, but you hit him again that, that next day with a hot cow and it's like game on. And that, that has always been the most effective for North Idaho, but yeah. And I can remember in college, we would go out and in North Idaho and there's logging roads everywhere and, you know, clear cuts and all that. So you'd go and just, we would drive until 3 a.m. Yeah. And we'd drive, we'd get to a ridge, we'd hike down hundred or 200 yards and we'd stand there for 40 minutes and we'd bugle and wait 10 minutes and we'd bugle and wait 10 minutes and we'd bugle. And after 40 minutes, a bull would answer just a week. Oh. Yeah. And it's like, okay, there's a bull there. We'd spend the next two days that weekend hunting that bull and never get it. And any elk, any success we had came from an elk that answered us our first bugle. And we spent so much time chasing elk. We'd get locked on the first elk that bugled at us after 40 minutes of trying, we would would spend all of our time chasing him. And I I don't know at what point it changed, but I realized those aren't the elk to chase. If you have to convince an elk in the dark to bugle after 40 minutes, this is pre-wolf. Right. He's not going to be fired up the next day to come into calls. And so now we do, we look for that hot bull that's just screaming and fired up that day. Yeah. And we'll walk by 10 others to to get to that one. Yeah. Some of my best memories in Idaho when I was learning the ropes from Dallas was uh, just that. We'd hit Aries not too far off from those same logging roads yep. that you're talking about. And, uh, you know, you get a call, but it's a lazy call. You know, it's just not a fired up bull. And you try, you know, you give it some time and hopefully they fire up and get them to stand up or something. But yep. a lot of times they just don't. Yeah. But Dallas taught me this, like, uh, and he would, a lot of times he'd hunt just the first few hours in the morning, um, maybe up till about 10. 
um, which I've changed that strategy <laughs> quite a bit since that. But uh, I think most of my bulls have always come between that 10 and 2 yep. range, 11 to 1 range. Um, so, so not everything that Dallas taught me has held true. Yeah. But he gave me a you know real good outline. But he would uh, he would hear a bull, and it'd just be a lazy call, lazy you know like you said, just a moan or something like that. And he'd give it a little bit of time, maybe a half hour. And if it never did get excited, he'd say, well, we're going to come back tomorrow. We'll see how, see what he, how he reacts to this tomorrow. And I went back with him one time with his son. And uh, it was probably the second or th- maybe the third or fourth day that we went back to that same bowl and that same little drainage. And that morning, in the dark, of course, that first locator comes out. And that bull is lit up. <laughs> and I mean, on fire that day. He had a hot cow that day. And that was the day that Chad went down in there and killed that bull. And it was easy, like you said. That was an easy day to kill that bull. Yep. Um, he didn't have to work at it. That bull was, was like, that was the day he was going to die. Yep. <laughs> and he put himself down in the right position, got the wind right, and it was easy. Where I think a lot of people... Um, make the mistake of hearing that little bugle like a lazy bugle and they're just going to go for it no matter what yeah. and generally what happens is you end up pushing that bull out and then you don't get another crack well, or i whatever. think a lot of times you know public land type stuff you're excited to hear a bugle yeah and even if it's absolutely. a lazy bugle it's like we got an elk bugle we've got to make something happen here and yep. and you say we say it all the time we have to find the elk that wants to die today yeah and if he doesn't want to die, meaning he's not fired up enough to drop his senses and come charging into a stinky human standing there with a plastic bugle, yeah. you probably aren't going to have a very good chance of killing him with calls. <laughs> and the other aspect of that, and I know why you're so fit, Corey, it's because that requires a lot of walking. <laughs> because you you got to go find another bull that day that's yep. hot. And sometimes that is more miles than many people are willing to put in yep. um, to try to find that one bull. So, yeah. I mean, I've seen you and how you do things, and, and it's very similar to how uh, I, would, I would go about it in certain conditions, yeah. you know, heavy timbered type conditions, and it's find that hot bowl. So are you competitive? Am I competitive? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just when you said, I find an animal, I target it, and I kill it, yeah. that's just, I mean, that's a competitive, not competitive with other hunters, but sure. you, you push yourself to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, it, it, when you when you ask that, it's like uh, I'd like to ask you the same a similar question. When you're out there, are you do you get a little bit of a like a little bit stressed out? Like you're just working so hard, it almost is like it's not fun at a certain point. For me, I can I can test that. It's like if somebody was paying attention or standing you know next to me during this, they'd almost think that I wasn't having fun yeah. at all because it's like a chess match. You're just yep. You're doing anything and everything you can to try to make that happen. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's just running ridges and trying <laughs> to find that one bull that day. And it almost looks as if you're not having fun. Yeah. But the fun comes once you put it all together and it, and it works out. So, yeah, no, and I'm the same way. It's people always ask, is there a lot of pressure to be successful, you know, with Elk 101 or different things? I'm like, no, not really. That's, I put pressure on myself to be successful, that's not it. for anybody else. And it's kind of the same when I decide. I want to hunt that bull or that I need to call in that bull. He's hung up. I need to figure out a way to break him loose and get him into this setup. Yeah. I've already made my mind up. I'm going to shoot that bull. He might step out and be a four point. Yeah. But if he's given me a challenge, 
I, I accept that challenge and it's not like I come to full draw and let him walk at that point. Right. You know, Randy's looking at me with a skeptical look because I've probably <laughs> let a couple elk walk when we hunted, but that was the first night of the first day of the hunt. And the second night. And the third morning. No. And we didn't even see that many elk. <laughs> we did too. Uh, <laughs> we, we got video of that, Corey. <laughs> I've, I've seen Corey in some videos letting some pretty nice bulls walk. Yeah. It's always first day though. I mean, you look it at is. it. I, I'm not, and I had somebody the other day say, they left a comment on Instagram and said, I just watched your Arizona hunt that you released on YouTube and I'm unfollowing you because I'm sick of watching spoiled brats pass up elk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I thought, I you don't understand. This is my, this is what I love to do. And if I go and fill my tag on the first day of any hunt, yeah. public land or the uh, uh, Roosevelt hunting on the coast, I will shoot a spike on the first day. That's different. Yeah. But any other hunt, I want to get three or four days of hunting in. Absolutely. Just, I don't want to pack up and go home. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're competitive. You compete with yourself out there. You kind yeah. of set a goal. I, um, I really, really like to find a bull. It's one of my favorite things. It's like you get the most gratification if, if you give yourself a really, really hard situation, like you find the biggest bull in that basin, um, and you kind of, to get to that bull, you're going to have to pass, you're going to have to avoid other bulls that may be a little bit easier, but the, the challenge you've laid out for yourself is you want that bull yep. by the tones that he's making, whether it's a growl or he doesn't have tones anymore, or, you know, he's just a growly old bull. That's the bull that you want. Yep. And so, yeah, I totally understand that. It's, it's a com competition with yourself. It is. And uh, it's such an, in you know, you, you can get so intense about it that I was just trying to like, if somebody was right next to me, like if my wife was next to me during that kind of a scenario, she would think that I wasn't having fun. Yeah. But it's just a kind of an intensity about it. Yeah, and I was gonna say, I think it's an intense, it's not a, not that we aren't having fun, it's just we're so intense in that situation that it's like, I've set my goal, now I'm gonna push and do everything I can do to be successful. Right. And it's so focused and so intense that when it does happen, that, I mean, you see the excitement then. Oh, we're yeah. excited, but up till that point, it's not like, oh gosh, this is a lot of fun, this bull, you know, I'm working him, <laughs> and it's just like focused in, zoned in, and. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm doing wrong. Having too much no, fun, Randy. I am. You're chasing grouse. That's what you're doing wrong. <laughs> well, that's more fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get grouse hunting banned during elk season just so you can That's all right. Focus you go on right elk. ahead. I'll just have to break the law if you're successful in getting it banned. No, uh, I, I listened to you guys say that. I, again, it's another, I, I would say, distinction about people who come to elk hunting via archery. To me, when I'm out archery hunting, maybe it's because I'm on such a steep learning curve. I don't really have a frustration level. I, me, I expect everything to go wrong. So if something goes right, I'm like, holy cow, we got within 100 yards of that thing. How about that? Hot damn. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, occasionally I luck out and I shoot one. And... Uh, like, man, the planet's aligned today. That guy, back then, when you guys were saying uh, that boy bull wanted to die today, for me to shoot one with a bull, that thing just had to want to die so bad. I mean, he was just sacrificial in his behaviors. But So I, I, it's interesting to listen to that conversation right there because I, I don't feel any of that. I, to, to me, I'm just out there, and maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it's a just each person we're all individually different 
maybe that's it. But yeah. I'm just out there. Usually, are you competitive? Oh yeah. Like if somebody's in line in front of you for a blizzard. I oh, mean, whatever, whatever. Yeah, I'm very competitive. I don't like to lose, man. I, <laughs> I just don't like to lose. But so does that attitude? I mean, do you have that same attitude with an elk? No, I don't. I don't know why. I mostly because I, hunting for me is a. I know it's an escape. It's a whole lot of other things. It's uh, now you reach. I I think it was about five to eight years ago. I reached that point where. I realized, you know, there's a whole lot more haunts in the rearview mirror than in, there are in the front windshield. So, and I don't know how far the trail or the road ahead goes, but every one of those little trails that allow for an elk hunt or a day in the elk woods, I'm going to do, and I'm going to milk it, and I'm going to enjoy it. And I, I would say if you ask me that question 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, man, I did this elk hunt. I'm about ready to quit. I get so mad, so frustrated. Why do I even do this? And and my wife would attest. I'd come home. She she would tell me at times, why don't you just quit elk hunting for a few weeks, you know? <laughs> get Take it a break. Yeah. Uh, so there was a time when I was that way, but now I'd, I'd say I'm not. Now, someone else who's observing me might say completely different. Randy, I didn't know you were no. that intense, man. Yeah. No, like the first time I hunted with you, and I know we... we talked about it for four or five years mm -hmm. and when i went hunting with you it was a completely different atmosphere i didn't care that in fact it was one of the first times i didn't fill an elk tag in 20 some years of hunting mm -hmm. on that hunt with you in montana but it was a blast we yeah. went we had fun it was just and i think it's important to have that because i think what happens a lot of times is you get so locked in into that competitive atmosphere you start competing with other hunters. And then it becomes a, a comparison of, I shot a bigger elk than him, or he shot a bigger elk than me. I've got to try harder next year. And that becomes the driving force and the, the purpose behind hunting, and it loses all its fun. And that's... I, I got a question for you, Corey. Um, curious what you would say. If, like when you're, when you're going out there and you finally get that bull that you think, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a hot bull. I know you're probably pretty confident you're going to kill that bull. Like, how confident are you? <laughs> like, how many times when you find that one bull that's like, oh, that, that's the one right there. He sounds yeah. hot. How many times would you say it works out? So the, the crazy thing and the cool thing about elk hunting is the second you gain confidence, the elk steal it from you. <laughs> the, every time that I go out there and think... This year, I've practiced more with my bow. I'm in better shape. I'm doing everything. The elk don't stand a chance. I come back licking my wounds. Humbled, yeah. Yep. yeah. And that happened last year. I didn't shoot, an, I didn't fill an elk tag last year. Yeah. And I was ready for it. It was elk are in trouble this year. Now, were there times when you felt like that was the day? Like you found a bull that that was his day? Oh, yeah. 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 And it I, didn't work out. Yeah. First day in Wyoming. Very first day, a bull from 450 yards away bugles. And the next time he bugled, he's 250 yards away. And I said, get ready to pack. That bull's dead. I mean, he's coming 200 yards to us. We haven't even done anything. He's coming in. He's, it's his day to die. And I shot it two inches low. Mm. Hit the shoulder. Mm. And that's, I mean, that literally is a difference between success on archery hunting sometimes is a couple inches. I was fully confident. And everything happened the yeah. way it should, except for one small mistake I made. And right. that cost... I mean, that cost my season, really. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think there are times, based on the bull, I can tell we have a really high percentage. 
of getting this bull into our setup. But the wind can switch at any time. Um, another hunter on public land can move in at any time. There's all these factors in the back of my mind. I never seal. I never notch my tag before I before I walk up on the dead elk. So yeah, for sure. never that confident. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and we joke about it. You know, we'll get up there and there'll be this bull just screaming down in the canyon. We'll say, if we just notch our tag, now that bull's dead. You know, yeah. he's, he's that hot. We aren't saying it in arrogance like, oh, we're so good, we're going to go kill him. It's just that bull is so fired up that we probably should kill that elk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think with a spot and stock, you know, you, you come across situations where um, when you find a bull out in an opening or um, in some basin or whatever, and uh, you know, it's like mule deer hunting. It's, um, there, there's circumstances where you can pick out a buck or a bull in a spot where you, you're so confident. It's like he, in that spot, in these conditions, with the wind going that direction, I know I'm going to get to a spot where I can get that bull yeah. killed. And, uh, but with calling, it's, it's never that confident. I never get that much confidence. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of times where y- you think, wow, that, that, that bull is hot. I'm going to have a shot at this bull. But uh, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out. See, I'm exactly the opposite. Yeah. With calling, I'm like, okay, 99% chance we're going to kill this elk. The setup's good. We've got good lanes. The wind's good. The train's perfect. The collar can be back over this rise. The bull's going to come right here. I'm going to shoot him right here. Yeah. And with spot and stock, I'm like, gosh, that wind could switch at any time. I might step <laughs> on a branch and break it. And, you know, it's all these negatives that are like doubts yeah. when I'm trying to spot and stock because that's not my strong suit. Right, right. Now, you had a, you had, you've only, have you spot and stock one bull in, one. in your life? That I was, was that I was forced New to. Mexico bull? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And I've, I've slipped in on elk in their beds before. You know, their bugle and have a buddy stay back and bugle and slipped in and shot them. Mm-hmm. I've shadowed them. You know, with the herd bull moving with his cows, and I've just moved in close and just stayed on him, stayed on him until he turned, and I've shot him that way. But to truly spot an elk in its bed, circle 180 degrees around the mountain, come in over the top behind it, and sit there in the sun and bake for four hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. Mm. I got a spot for you because where Corey killed that bull three oh, years prior to that, or f- no, four years prior to that, I spot and stocked another one. But when you were saying, you know, how you were like, okay, the wind is this, the conditions, I was sick as a dog. My liver was killing me, and I was about ready to cry and go home. And there's this bull out there with this big herd in this basin, and then this other bull underneath this shaded rock. I glassed him up. I told my camera guy, I said, let's go kill that bull. He's like, yeah, right. I'm like, no, we're going to come right around. The wind's perfect. We're going to step right up on this rock up above him, and we're going to shoot him. That bull read the script, man. He laid right there. I got up above him at, at like, from, it'd be like me standing six feet above where you're at right now, and I had to stand there for 20 minutes because on TV at that time, when I was on TV, you couldn't shoot him in their bed. Oh, right. And so I'm just waiting and waiting. We can hear him panting. And we're right above him. We're exposed. We're skyline. Fortunately, he had a pedicle that was broke or, or something had happened. And so that antler on that side grew further out the front of his head. And so it was right over his eyeball. Blocking his vision. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but when I saw that bull bedded there, even if it wasn't for that, I was confident we were going to get a shot at him. Yeah. It's because everything about the conditions, the set up was perfect yeah one o'clock in the afternoon he was laying on the deck yeah yeah it almost seems like uh unless there's like 
a human interaction, like unless somebody comes in and messes it up. I don't know why, but I just feel a lot more confident on the spot and stock. Probably because um, you're just, in control. I mean, yeah. you really are. And that's, yeah. for me, I don't have patience. I make too many aggressive moves on spot and stock when I should just lay back and wait for the right conditions. Like, I'm going to take a chance. The wind's blowing cross right now. I'm going to take a chance and get 20 more yards before it switches. Yeah. And I get caught halfway there in the wind switch. So, I mean, just little things that I take risks that when you spot and stock, you've got to be more patient. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think as a... The, I can't say it. I'm just going to say stealthy. Uh, <laughs> the stealthy hunter. Uh, do you think people get too impatient on whether it's a spot and stock or, okay, I'm going to stock into an area and let him come to me, you think they get too impatient? Is that the yeah, biggest reason they mess it up? I mean, just just for myself, I would say, yeah, the, the mistakes that I made early, uh, my early hunts for spot and stock, the mistakes are always made in those last, like, 50, 80 yards. And that's where people get impatient. You're so close. You're right there. Yeah, I mean, you almost got it, and you do something like you... You just get a little reckless at that point because you've got that far. And um, I think that's where it really, really pays to, um, you know, have a, have a good patience game. Yeah. Um, for example, that coos deer this year. I mean, that was the whole strategy there was to get in on that buck and wait him out, let him make the mistake. Because I know I couldn't get in tight on a coos buck in that type of cover. It just wasn't going to happen. I could have tried but my odds were probably going to be so low. Um, and I would have had to have taken a, probably a longer shot than I was comfortable taking. So it was basically get in as tight as possible and let them make the mistake. And that's never, it's never a guarantee when, you know, you're playing the, that game, but um, boy, it takes a lot of patience. Yeah. Knowing those bucks are just out of range and all you got to do is do an, another 10 yards, 20 yards, and you got that shot but that's usually where things get blown up and you mess up. Yeah. So, yeah. That's like that bull in New Mexico. We got within 90 yards of it in three minutes. And then it was four hours to get a shot. And yeah. it's just, I think anybody can get inside, you know, 100 or 150 yards on an elk, a mule deer, anything, but it's closing that gap and getting close enough for a shot. And like you said, it's very rare that you're going to be able to shoot an animal in its bed. It has right. to make the move. It has to step up, step into your lane, come 10 yards closer to you. Something has to happen. You're relying on that a little bit, mm -hmm. but you have to put yourself in that position yeah. to allow that to happen. And for me, when that bull, I, I finally, I was like, I can't stay here any longer. My legs were asleep. I had my shoes off. They were 60 yards behind me. Everything there is pokey and sharp. <laughs> I'm baking in 85 degree sun with a 20 mile an hour crosswind, just pounding the sun into the side of my face. And I'm like, I am done. I am out of every ounce of patience. I was exhausted physically and mentally. And I'm like, I'm just going to stand up and make something happen. So I laid back, drew my bow. And I stood up fully expecting that bull to just launch out of his bed and take off. And so I pulled back and I step up on him and he just swung his head slow and you could see his eyes get big. And he rose up about halfway and they stopped and looked at me again and came all the way up. Well, in that time, I'm like trying to get my pin on him and moving up and down. I missed him the first shot, 25 yards. So <laughs> I spent four hours getting in close to this bull, baked out there and then missed a 25 yard shot. Unfortunately, I think he'd been sleeping that whole four hours. A little and he didn't, Yeah, he's like, what is, what's going on? What is, what's this guy doing? And he ran out to, I don't know, 30 yards or something, stopped and looked back, and then I shot and Man. made good on it. That sounds like a mule deer hunt, like an early season mule yeah. deer hunt. Yeah. yeah. I'm assuming you probably aren't a big 
like early season mule deer. I love November mule deer hunting. November mule deer hunting. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, baking I, in the sun is par for the course yeah. in, in August, September mule deer hunting. Yeah, and I'd love to do it more, but it's just that time of year is tough because I'm gearing up for elk season, right. trying to maximize September. And so to take the first week of September and hunt mule deer is just not going to happen. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But I do have 16 or 17 mule deer points in Colorado. Holy what? smokes. Yeah. How I have, did you I have let 16, that happen? 16 mule deer points in Oregon. I just don't know where to go, so I'm waiting. You are in for a good hunt in Colorado, Corey. My goodness. I talked to South yeah. Cox, and he's like, take your pick. You can probably Anywhere. draw any rifle hunt. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, I want an archery hunt. Yeah. I said, you mm. can draw a good archery hunt with two points. Yeah. So. <laughs> we went into Colorado last year for the first time. And we've just put in on a one-point unit, and we had a phenomenal hunt. Yeah. I mean, it's Colorado. There's a lot of big bucks, and you're above timberline, and it's just real conducive to spot and stock. Um, but there is some baking in the sun, yeah. Corey. <laughs> 12,000 <laughs> 12, feet. 12, feet. closer to the sun. <laughs> Thin air and a lot of sun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, I'm just soaking this all in. I'm, just, I'm taking notes. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, you know, as a, primarily a rifle hunter. And, you know, I don't, when I get to that 150 yard thing you guys were talking about, I don't have much to worry about yep. after that. Yeah. You know, I, I think everyone should host a podcast. Why? Because until we started Elk Talk Podcast, mm-hmm. I had been a guest on probably 80 or 90 podcasts. Mm-hmm. And talked about the same thing all the time. What's your style of hunting? And just in the handful of episodes we've done with guests on Elk Talk Podcast, I've become a better hunter. You know, talking with the guys this morning from Angry Spike Productions right. on Roosevelt hunting and picking up just a couple, just minor tips that, yeah. that I think tip the scale. And then just, Ryan Lake inspires me to be a stealthy hunter. Yeah. I want to spot and stock things because I know I am not a good hunter. I'm a, I can hold my own elk hunting but when it comes across the board to go out and say we need camp meat or we you know you're you're providing for the village this week <laughs> i'm not that guy unless the elk season is september and it aligns right there so and here comes randy with his rifle yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we gotta well, have a backup plan yeah <laughs> it's true but i i really enjoy spot and stock hunting so that same spot where Corey killed his i killed one the two years in between those hunts, uh, I think those were four years apart. Yeah. A bull I had seen there with my nephew in a youth hunt two years prior, I thought it had a broken beam. So my, my nephew passed. It's really a long, big six point. Well, I'm out there two years later, same ridge. I'm like, that guy broke his beam again this year. <laughs> Get the spotter out. He never had a pedicle on the left side. So he beds. And I got within 28 yards of him for a long time. But back to your point on how that last little bit, there's a cow bedded over to the left of me. And I'm thinking I can cheat a little bit and sneak forward. And I kind of thought she was around a pinion tree where she couldn't see me. Well, I was wrong. (laughs) But I think if I would have been patient like you were saying, Ryan, and I would have just sat down there and waited it out, as the sun moved, that bull, he's between me and the cows. So it's just, it's not like I got to worry about the cows that are behind them. There's just one off to the left. Well, if I wouldn't have got my shorts in a bind, 
I would have just waited him out because he would have stood up for the sun or he would have heard a bull bugle or another bull would have came walking across a further hillside and I would have had a broadside shot at 28 yards. Right. No. Didn't end you got to push the envelope. Yeah. But push the envelope. Yeah. I have yeah. so much fun doing that. It's, I really enjoy spot and stock hunting with a bull. I, and people ask me about mule deer hunting. I would way rather archery hunt mule deer than rifle hunt them. Yeah. Absolutely. Not, not even a question. And that's, that's where I really get worked up about archery hunting. Well, don't get me wrong. I love when a bull comes in. I, that's a ton of fun. But I really love archery hunting when it's mule deer season. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, uh, I think mule deer hunting early season with a bow i mean that teaches you patience right yeah. there right it, you, to, yeah. to get try to be consistent with that um it, you have to be patient or you're just never going to get a shot but um and that's why i love see i'm the opposite i i love the early season mule deer hunts in states like colorado or nevada uh, washington has been really good for that so I will actually miss some of my September to chase <laughs> mule deer um, and then hunt those, uh, you know, hunt those bulls more when I can. And that's why right now I'm so stuck on this October Montana hunt. It's like the perfect time. I get to chase my mule deer in early, early season, whether that's August or September. And, uh, but I would love to hunt more those late season hunts um, with a rifle, and I've only done one in my life. Um, I've wow. got one bull under my belt with my rifle, and that was a brakes bull um, quite a few years ago over in Montana. But that was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was just getting up on those plateaus, and it felt like it was a needle in a haystack out there. So that was the challenge of just finding a bull out there. But that was one of, like, I'll always think real fondly of that hunt just because the challenge wasn't, you know, getting in tight or anything like that. It's just trying to find the best bull that you could find yeah. out in that type of broken country. And that was, that was a lot of fun, but that's my only rifle experience, Randy. Wow. <laughs> so I'm I can't chime only, in on that. I've only shot one, uh, one elk with a rifle. Jeez. That'll change this uh, year though. Randy and I are going to go chase them in, in the snow. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Ryan should join us. Yeah. <laughs> but he'll, 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 he'll be tagged out. He'll be yeah. tagged out. He won't have Montana tagged by November. <laughs> no, I'll teach you how the, how to scare him off with a rifle too. Perfect. I mean, it's just as easy to mess it up with a rifle as it is with a bow. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I excel at a lot of yeah. things that are failure yeah i don't excel at a lot of things that are success so right <laughs> occasionally one gets in the way and we we make it look good on tv thank thank goodness to the editing button people think i i get one every time or i, yeah. I get into them every time they just don't we don't want to bore them with the five days before that where we walked yeah. around and see anything or called <laughs> on our calls all day and didn't get a response yeah so we Not did a, we did a piece on our New Mexico hunt last year. It was so hot. <laughs> this was strictly in humor. Some people didn't see it as humor. We're driving down the road trying to do a piece for Nissan about my Nissan Titan. And Marcus, my camera guy, is sitting in the back seat on the passenger side, bugling and calling out the, the window, driving on Highway 60 <laughs> outside of Daddle, New Mexico. And Michael is filming... And this is so crazy. There's two cows, cow out, standing off the side of the road. So we stopped, like, oh, we found them. 
because we're making fun of how hard it was to find them. And some people didn't see any humor in that. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was just a joke. But uh, So that's what we do when we get to that frustration point. We go do lighten something up. I did a NASCAR commercial on that hunt. And I just, I, because I can feel myself starting to get to that stressed out point. And I just got to say, all right, I can feel it coming on. And I go do something that's stupid or i go take a nap or i, I do whatever and then it's you go chase a grouse to, to, that's <laughs> yeah. that's usually the fun part and so for me that hits the mental reset button of all right yeah. clean the slate where are we at let's assess here all right let's go do this yeah and so i think i saw some of that in arizona this year you were uh chasing coos and then all of a sudden you were chasing javelina <laughs> <laughs> and rabbits and anything <laughs> i'm glad you did because you uh, you cooked those up they were delicious yeah. rabbits Oh, oh man, jackrabbits! Jackrabbits were about as good as meat can possibly we, be. Ryan was the taste tester. Yeah. Okay. Corey doesn't look convinced. I, I've smelled jackrabbit before. No, these antelope jackrabbit were. I had no idea. I'd never eaten one, and I had. I was t- totally skeptical, and then Randy started cutting up this like a a backstrap that you would see on like a coos deer. It's this big old backstrap on this jackrabbit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, it was just like the highest quality meat that so you've ever had. So what's an antelope jackrabbit? What's the difference? It's a subspecies of the jackrabbits. Most of what we see are blacktails. Yeah. Um, and and it's they're the ones bigger. that are covered in mites and full of... Any rabbit can be. But these <laughs> antelope jackrabbits, they, they can hit the scales at 12 pounds. They're yeah. like long... And yeah, depending on how and many they, mi- mites and uh, other diseases it, they have. Whatever. I'm going to cook <laughs> one so for tasty. you, Corey, and you're not even going to know it's a jackrabbit. I'll rabbit. eat anything, but I just... <laughs> but, no, it's... Uh, yeah, I think I mean, now that I've got this grouse thing kind of moderated under control through a 12-step program from my doctor. Anybody that's telling you you have your grouse problem under control. <laughs> but uh, I might have to switch it over to jackrabbits. But no, I like, right, I like right. how you explain that, though, just hitting the reset button. He's going to use that every time he sees a grouse. So, yeah. I got to mm-hmm. hit the reset button. I'm hunting yeah. with Corey. I need a reset button. Yeah. <laughs> no, for me, just, like I said earlier, I just... And I hope it comes across that way with people who are with me or people who are watching or listening that I am really there to enjoy the experience of what this natural world has to offer because we can have our lives so occupied, so directed and contained by everything else around us. The one place I feel like I get to say how my day is going to be, how I get the sanity back is when I'm out there just me and the woods and the whatever critter it is and the wind and the snow or the sun and i i know that's that's my therapy that's that's life that that yeah. brings things back to where man that's a good day what a country absolutely I, could, I couldn't agree more i mean you know my wife she's right here she could attest to that um you know i get frustrated with everything back home at times and um she's probably you know, ready to kick me out of the house at certain points. <laughs> Go I'm sure she has. But, uh, you know, when I come back from, you know, a solo trip, successful or not, I'm always, uh, it's like I hit the reset button. You just, you know, you enjoy things more and it's, it's just uh, kind of in a more state of, state of calm after you've, you've gone in a hunt like that and spent time in the mountains. So, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> so when you've, when you've done all of your spot and stock elk hunting, is there 
if we were to say, all right, Ryan, you get to pick this topography, this time of year, this setting, that you're going to continue being the stealthy hunter, what, what, describe the, the perfect day and the perfect location. Okay. For elk? Yeah. Yes. This, yeah. Is, this is elk talk. We better talk. <laughs> yeah. Stick with elk. Yeah, we, we'll get off the jackrabbits and coos deer. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, what you look for in topography for spot and stock is a lot of cuts, a lot of folds, a lot of, you know, rock ribbons and, and places where, you know, they're going to bed up and you're going to have a shot to get in and t- in tight. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to enjoy hunting the breaks country a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that country just lends itself to spot and stock. Do you like uh, ribbons of timber or do you like more open with ribbons of timber? Yes, somewhat, but, uh, I really like rocky yeah. type terrain. Um, you know, sparse trees, trees are nice. You can, you can use trees for getting in on critters. Um, but I do like that open stuff a lot more. And even just tall sage, you know, it, last, uh, this past season, for example, it was a spot that I would not have felt would have been great for spot and stock. If I'd have looked at, at uh, you know, on X and, and checked it out, I, I would have probably talked myself out of going there for spot and stock. But there was enough timber up top that I wanted to get up and get my calling in and just see where the elk were and their rut and all that. And, it just so happened that I found most of the elk were down, down lower in the open, more sage type country. But fortunately, there were some ribbons of taller sage down there. And from a distance, you know, just glassing these things, you just think it's impossible. There's no way I'm going to get in tight on that group, 50 cows and two bulls in there. It almost seemed impossible. But they happened to, you, you know, I watched them for a long time and they had this direction they were going. And I kind of put it together where if they go down and through this next swale, they're going to get to a point where I get a shot because there's some tall sage over there. If I can get in there, I think they'll come through and I can, I can stay incognito down there. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, they put themselves in the spot, they all bedded down and it just happened to be some nice tall sage. And I was able to get on the backside and, and come up that stuff. And I got to a point where I couldn't go any farther and... It was a long way. It was probably about an hour wait before uh, that bull got. Now, he, he didn't stay down very long. He was kind of moving around the cows. And, and he, uh, he ended up coming to me and got to within 15 yards, and I got that shot. But uh, it was just not the most ideal spot for spot and stock. But uh, I really like that cut, like coolie-type country, um, junipers and you know, rolls and cuts and folds. He and would stuff love like your that. New Mexico area. I know. I mean, um, it's you uh, can look as far as you want to see, and there are so many ridges with rock bluffs and yeah. cliffs and ribbons, and right. then a uh, one juniper tree out here and one pine tree over here, and just windswept grass, and then backside is just oh, yeah, sounds perfect. So yeah. many elk material. It just while we were going in, we watched this elk go over the top of the ridge, drop off the backside. So we boogied around trying to get over there. Just in getting there, I don't know how many elk we bumped into in the draws between there that we didn't even know were around. Went clear around and we're glassing down below us like he must have completely left the country. And we turn around and 150 yards above us, we see antlers sticking up out of the grass there. Like we completely went past him. He's laying right there. And it's, yeah, it, it, there's an element of 
fun. Yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's not, a different type of chess it's match. It's different. Because, like sitting here talking about it, I would go and grab a bow and go and spot and stalk something right now. It's sure. like exciting. <laughs> but there in the moment, it's like, why won't he just bugle one time? Why won't he just bugle and we can call him in and be done with this nonsense that is sitting here in the sun and baking? and Right. Yeah. yeah. So if Time of year, if you had when archery season's open in Nevada and Utah, August 15th-ish, somewhere in there, all the way to when it closes in Montana this year, October 20th, for spot and stock, what time frame would you pick? Um, for spot and stock, I would yeah. say the the real early and the real late. Okay. The latter part of October, the middle part of October, when they're kind of coming off that rut. At least you can still get the vocals. You can kind of pick up where they're at. They're still talking a little bit. Mm. Um, and the early part of the year, I, I think uh, I haven't done a whole lot of the August type stuff. Um, beginning of September and whatnot, but I think if I had to narrow it down, I'd say first and second week in October. They're still talking. They're still kind of showing themselves, um, and hopefully you're in the type of environment where you can you can get a stock in on them. But last two years has been the same. It's been that that second week, first to second week in October, and it's worked really well for spot and stock. And See, the advantage of no people. Yeah, I was just gonna say that extends opportunity when you become. A stealthy hunter. Yeah. You get to hunt the rut in September and call, but you can spot and stock for two weeks in August. You can spot and stock in October. You can go to Arizona and spot and stock in November, late season, in units like Unit 9 and Unit 10. Shut <laughs> up. We're going to edit that part out. No, this, oh, is like, this is like four months of elk hunting. Wait a minute. I didn't know I, existed. I've been getting excited because I've been hearing Randy talk about Arizona and these late season hunts. <laughs> yeah. I'm almost there with the point where uh, that... that really excites me to go down and try that country yeah um, you that november type you would love it yeah. Brian. i've i've had early rifle hunts so the archery hunts go right up to the day before i mean the, er, er, the late archery hunt ends early or uh, late rifle starts the gotcha. next day so they're right back to back and i've been down there on some of those hunts scouting and you run into guys with these late archery tags and they're having lots of encounters. Yeah. And if you pick the right units, it's actually really good stocking country. There's a lot of sand. And, and these elk go bed out in these pinion juniper flats. And they're pretty scattered. I watched the guy one time. I'm like, he's going to kill that thing. And it was so fun to watch. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what happened, but it, the bull got up. And he, he, it got up when he, he had a tree between him and, and the bull. And the bull got up and walked straight away. I don't know if the wind changed or whatever, but it was so exciting to watch this. And the number of elk you see on, that, on those late archery hunts in Arizona is a lot. That's what I've heard. It's a very target-rich environment. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, I was telling you to shut up. Now you guys got me talking <laughs> to spilling the beans here. I've oh. talked to some guys about that, um, real successful elk hunters, and they've fallen in love with that down there just because of you know multiple stocks a day on bulls that are basically, you know, moving a lot throughout the day, just trying to strap the feed bags on and get some of that fat back. Yeah. So, no, that really excites me. I, I can't wait until I finally <laughs> draw one of those late season tags. And they aren't that hard to draw. We no. did the yeah. episode on Arizona, and there's some 
pretty primo easy. units. You can draw with three and four points yeah. for archery late season hunt. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm sitting on 11 points. Going. I'm not burning them yet, but I, once I do, no, I'm going to be hunting late season. If I don't draw a late rifle tag this year, I didn't do a uh, late archery because of my calendar already being messed up. But if I don't draw a late rifle this year, I'm putting in for late archery next year. Yeah. I, I'm not even batting an eye. I, I've been thinking about... Think, excuse me, thinking about it since they came out with those seasons, and it's just more than the te- the temptation is more than I can bear at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To to know that you're going to a place that's almost all public land, you're going to go there and you're going to hunt the same bull herds, the herds, the same age classes that everyone's hunting in the September. I mean, yeah, the fun in your face kind of archery hunts, and you're going to have way fewer hunters in the woods. That's everything. I That checks all my boxes right oh, there. Sign me up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'm excited because I'm right at that point where I'll probably draw next year. So I just oh. got to go down and take that class. So I, I get do one too. more. So you can do it online and then just do the field day for a couple hours yeah, in your person. Good. So yeah. I have the online portion done. I have my certificate printed off. I just have to show up in Arizona and do the field day. And if it's any enticement, in 2007... In January, I went down to Kingman. I took the class. You sit in there for 12 or 14 hours. The next two days, I shot limits of quail without a dog. I had a great time. And then I drew an Arizona strip mule deer tag that year because now I was in the max point pool. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't promise you'll draw an Arizona strip mule deer tag because you go take it, but that's how it worked out for me. Yeah. Yeah, I kicked myself. I had mule deer points for the first five years, and I was just so focused on elk so i started in 2001 yeah i would have 18 mule deer points right now and I, my focus was either the kaibab or the kaibab or the strip yeah. i'm quit. actually surprised you you haven't gotten that class taken yet Corey. Yeah. mr elkin yeah surprises well, me i need to <laughs> but you've hunted okay. arizona before right. we are yeah. not you we're gonna fold up this podcast if you don't have that class out of the way by this time next year wow <laughs> Well, maybe while you guys are down coos deer hunting, I'll go down and take the there, field there's day. There's a class going on at the same time. Perfect. So okay. I'll just go down for the field day and okay. come back and eat jackrabbit at night. And you come that's, on down. Okay. You'll probably just get to lick the plate. Come on down. If Ryan's there, between me and Ryan, that's about all that's going to be left there for you. <laughs> so... Uh. I uh, I don't. Uh, they're flickering the lights here. What is yeah, that? Yeah, they're that closing down. Go, yeah. Seven o'clock. Really? Whoa. All right. Well, Ryan, tell us where others can find you and yeah. learn more, follow along. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my wife and I run Hunt Harvest Health, um, and obviously all the Instagram, Hunt Harvest Health, the Healthy Hunter, and that's about it. And when you say to healthy stay hunter, healthy. it's S T H. Spell that. S T H E A L. Yeah. Stay yeah. healthy. Stealthy. Yeah. Stay, stay healthy. healthy. <laughs> Where can they get your podcast when you pick that up at? Uh, Hunt Harvest Health. So dot com. All the yeah, we can get that yeah, on we the have website. website HuntHarvestHealth.com, iTunes, Stitcher, iTunes. all those under Hunt Harvest Health. Yeah. Right. And I remember one thing you said to me when we were down in Arizona, Randy, and it's Uh-oh. like, how, how do you, 
how is it that you have a podcast? Because you don't say anything. Because <laughs> I'm very quiet. But I said, well, I got a wife. That's he talked me into doing it. I didn't want to do smart. it. I was like, I'm busy and no hunters want to hear what I have to say. And then he's like, no, I think you should do it with me because they really want to hear about that stuff. And then it's somehow turned into my podcast. So I just tell people, if you're getting too many health podcasts, it's because my husband's never home. He's out hunting. And so... <laughs> Sorry, it's now the Health, Health, Health podcast. Uh, that's true. Actually, truthfully, I mean, just this weekend, so many people coming out to us and just thanking us and people saying, I don't want to listen to another hunting podcast. I want to listen to something different. So I was like, I guess people are getting value out of it and this community needs it. And um, I've just felt really fortunate to have met so many amazing, cool people in the last two years because... Two years ago, I could have cared less about hunting or hunters. <laughs> really? No. Wow. So uh, I think it's been great for for my growth, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, and I think I, I think I didn't, I don't believe I said that uh, I think you should do it. I, I think hunters would benefit <laughs> from you doing the podcast, and I think that's held true. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, great. Awesome. Well, well Ryan, thank you for well, imparting your wisdom and <laughs> making all of us. I don't know how hunters. much wisdom there yeah, was there. There's but wisdom, Dr. There. Hillary. I was gonna yeah, say thank so you much. for letting me sit here and yeah. interject once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I Keep did Ryan good. Straight. I kept my you, mouth that shut was, most yeah. of the time because I know nothing about this topic you're talking about. So <laughs> I'm learning. But if you want to learn about the ills of Dairy Queen, Randy, she'll talk your ear off. What I'm doing, I think. You tell Randy how Dairy Queen causes inflammation? Sure. <laughs> we'll say that for another <laughs> yeah, podcast. For sure. Yeah, we we'll do that off air. Yeah. I because I don't want the world to know the how si inflamed you are. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a lot of things. I almost went and bought some of those sugar covered nuts that that's all you smell in here because yeah. they smell so good. And I was like, I don't know if I should sit down and eat a bunch of sugar covered nuts as I'm talking about my health podcast. Yep. <laughs> mm. Again, it's the Dairy Queen curse. I had willpower. I walked by that booth twice with my hand on my wallet thinking. It's a lot of money, but they smell so good. Well, you I know what? It's actually the smell of the Hunt Expo. That's what I think of when I yeah. walk in here every mm. year. It's like the smell of the Hunt Expo is Honey, cooking sugary. Glazed. Yes, nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know. I thought maybe that was someone's perfume or something. Oh. No, no. Cinnamon sweet nut perfume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this podcast is deteriorating uh, really yeah, quickly. Okay. Ryan, Hillary, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank yeah. you both. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Folks, Corey. thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode.